happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 278 for December the 29th, 2022, our final episode of the year and ostensibly our year in review. Uh, which may have something to do with cold weather. Who knows? we got some background themes going here. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from relatively warm Charlotte, North Carolina, where it was 61 degrees, and we had a heat wave today. It was amazing, um, but we did get a little touch of the cold uh, recently. Joining me, oh, and I am the media literacy and robotics teacher. Actually, I'm teaching an engineering design class this next year, semester two. So computer science middle school at Providence Day School in Charlotte. Joining me as always is Dr. Jason Neifer, the EdTech guru of the North, who has a background and the flannel to prove it tonight. How are you, Dr. Neifer? Uh, it is true. Um, I am well, sir. And uh, it has been a bit chilly uh, up here in Montana. Um, I will say, though, so uh, it, we did have a, a, the, the superstorm go through the area. And uh, I keep hearing the term at- atmospheric river, which uh, is apparently a thing that's a, a regular occurrence now, despite its rarity in the past. And uh, last Thursday morning when I woke up, it was negative uh, 27 degrees Fahrenheit in Missoula. And to be clear... We didn't have it nearly as bad as other parts of the state, and my understanding is that Lincoln, Montana, which is located in north-central Montana, um, small town um, uh, uh, with a lot of outdoor recreation outside of it, and they were down to negative 49 uh, 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 on uh, Thursday morning, and they were doing the calculations on the news, and they had a three-mile-per-hour wind, which at that cold, even a slight breeze can be super terrible from a windchill standpoint. The windchill was like negative 67 degrees um, Fahrenheit. So pretty chilly uh, here in the um, big sky country. And we'll talk more about my geek of the week, which is my background. If you happen to be watching the video, hey, we even have a live viewer. Hello, live viewer. Um, but that like dark purple in the northern uh, northwest here, there is probably what Jason is talking about. So I was in Manhattan, Kansas this last week, and they, I know the wind chill is down to 25 below. Um, I think it was probably like negative 10, maybe it hit negative 15, but I mean, that's atrociously cold. And I visited with um, some different friends of, of my dad's and, and mom's who have lived in, in that town for their whole lives. And they don't remember ever having a cold blast uh, that significant. So here in Charlotte and Matthews, where we live, uh, we had a pretty substantial windstorm that actually knocked down a tree right behind our house. It snapped it off. It's like about 15 feet above the ground, but then it snapped off. Luckily, it didn't take out our fence. And um, there was some you know, power outages uh, around the state. And uh, yeah, we're not going to be a weather show, folks. But hey, it's the year in review. This was a this was a pretty substantial uh, cold snap. So, Doctor Neifer, what would you like to do in tonight's show, and how is that going to be perhaps a little bit different than our usual shtick that we do here? But again, we're like doing the Thursday night thing. So, sorry for glad somebody's joining us live. Sorry that we've had to make some changes here in the holiday times. Uh, well, let's see. I think probably the best place to start, Wes, is you and I both picked, uh, kind of three major headlines that we could pull out of 2022. And, um, I, we, you know, we thought we'd do a brief year in review. So I think probably the best way to do this is, um, um, 
uh, one of us goes first, and then we just go back and forth and, and talk a little bit about the, the story and where we think it might be headed in 2023. You bet. Hey, we can also tell everybody, though, that you can find our links on edtechsr.com slash links, and I'll put that link uh, in, the, in the chat. Lisa Durf is joining us for, I think, the first time. And so, hello, Lisa. We're excited to have you join us live. Please jump into the chat and let us know your thoughts, any questions that you have. Uh, there on edtechsr.com slash links, you will find a monster Google Doc that has all of our episodes from basically 200 until today with all of our links. We also will have in today's show notes, and I don't think I added it yet, a Mastodon link. Because, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the EdTech Situation Room is now on Mastodon. So um, we are usually going through just a ton of, of news articles that we're kind of talking about. So, yeah, we've got, we've got some summary, uh, summary ideas that we've tried, just sort of big ones. And I, as I, Jason put, put his in first, so I just, you know, kind of tried to, to pick different ones. So did you want me to go first, Jason? Or Well, actually, let's do this. Hey, Siri, choose between Wes and Jason. I'm not sure if I understand. Well, okay, heads, it's Wes, tails, it's Jason. Siri, flip a coin. I'm not sure I understand. Wow, okay. Wes, I'm going to go first. I would like to start off with that uh, schools are continuing to dig out from COVID. And uh, you can tell that this is becoming less of a story in part because we haven't had many stories on this specifically this year. But I think the story of 2022, 20, 30, 40 years from now is going to be the schools were still struggling um, with the aftermath of COVID, even though the the pandemic itself has changed nature, certainly. Some might argue it's waned a bit, but that it continues to provide uh, struggles for schools. And uh, both Wes and I work in specific kinds of programs that were impacted in a little bit of a different way during the pandemic. But from the standpoint of my program, in, in which I run a distance learning program, there seems to be a lot of conversation going on about what worked and what didn't work in regards to the uh, school shutdowns that impacted a, a lot of, of, of parts of the United States. And um, there seems to be at least a national set of headlines to suggest that distance learning didn't work out so hot during uh, the pandemic. But one of the reminders I like to make to people is that that was emergency distance learning that in a lot of cases was trying to stretch the model very dramatically um, with a lot of folks that maybe didn't have experience or even desire to work in that format and that it's not a particular surprise it didn't bring similar results as the face-to-face -face classroom. Any thoughts, Wes, about schools continuing to dig out from the pandemic? Absolutely. I think that we all need to try to um, remember the things that were beneficial and good as a result of the, the pandemic and COVID. Um, you know, the, the, the point that, hey, some people will say this is, this is their only experience with distance learning and it was horrible, um, it, you know, can certainly be the case. I've, I've definitely had a sense both at my previous school in Oklahoma and, and then here in North Carolina both talking to my wife as well, who's in a, in a public school and, and then the, the, the private school where I am, you know, there's, there's a substantial number of teachers that, um, and I'm thrilled, obviously, you know, I'm thrilled definitely to be finished with, with masks for the most part um, and with so many different things that we, we had to do. But I think that we are really, we really miss an opportunity if we don't take a look at some of those things that were beneficial and also just 
I don't know. I think that we've just continued to pile more and more on teachers. And that really happened a lot during the pandemic. I don't know that I've seen that trend change at all. I mean, we're, we're very much in a teacher shortage here in North Carolina. We were in Oklahoma. Um, you know, teachers are being asked to do much more with, uh, in some cases, fewer resources and, and just more students, et cetera. But I think digging out of COVID uh, from an educational technology standpoint, you know, and we did this at the, the uh, Summer Institute in Digital Literacy, which I just, you know, have absolutely loved. Um, the last three years, I got to go face to face up to Rhode Island in 2019 um, and then have been uh, faculty for online for, for the last two years. Um, you know, my biggest takeaway from teaching both during the emergency online, you know, distance learning, whatever, home, at home learning, and then the adjusted model that we use was was just, you know, socio, uh, SEL check ins. Um, you know, checking in with kids about how they're doing, trying to not rush into content as much, trying to, you know, recognize and, and, and digital tools. There's some really great tools. We didn't use Zoom. We used um, uh, Google Meet, which has come a long way, by the way, in terms of its improvements. And COVID, you know, played a big role in that. I know that parent conferences, I guess that's a good thing to, to point out. We continued this last round, last semester of parent conferences to give parents that option. And I had about half of my parents opt to do that. Um, it was great to be in person with folks. And I think that we probably did have some of the best, you know, conversations and conferences because we had student led conferences when we were together in the room. But the chance to have parents in different places sometimes coming together, you know, with the child and the, and the parent and the teacher. I, that was a really, really big deal. And, and my encouragement, if anybody out there is an administrator or somebody who has input in, in school is, please, let's continue to offer flexibility to parents when it comes to parent-teacher conferences. Um, I, I really do celebrate the fact that we are so much more capable just as a society with virtual. People are more adept now to scan a QR code. I got to sort of guest teach a Sunday school class uh, here a couple of weeks ago at one of the churches we've been visiting. But, you know, I, I, I gave people a QR code and I, I expected people to balk. They did. And I'm, but my answer was, it's just like the menu, right? It's just like what we've been doing in menus throughout COVID. And so I think <clears throat> the, the positive like the more we can talk with parents and the more we can communicate and the more opportunity that we have, you know, there, there's all kinds of situations that people find themselves in. But I, I would, uh, I would put that up there near the top that the, the SEL check-in was really good. And I need to, I need to be reminded of that myself um, and how important that is to do on a regular basis with students and how tech technology tools. Cause anyway, we ended up in the, in the digital Institute, in the summer Institute on digital literacy, having some great modeling that people did of that at the beginning of, of sessions and stuff. But that whole conference thing would be a, a good thing to, to bring forward. So anything else that you'd say would be a good, cause it like specifically for your program, you all are online all the time. So I don't know how much COVID did COVID have a substantial impact on, on your program specifically. <laughs> It, it did, yeah. We we still see an uptick of students uh, that are looking for online learning models because they felt like that the either working at home or working in an online environment worked better for them. And one of the things that I think is not 
told very frequently in the stories about the pandemic UG and distance learning is that a lot of the surveys put the number of dissatisfied parents with the model um, under well under 70 percent, somewhere between I've, I've heard numbers as low as 55 and as high as 68 percent of parents uh, were dissatisfied with online learning during the pandemic. But that still lives leaves at least a third of parents that that uh, ha- find some value in the model or feel like the model worked pretty well for their kids. And we heard that story over and over again. And it's not a criticism of my brothers and sisters that work in uh, uh, traditional face to face schools, but rather that there are some students uh, who serve circumstances do demand more flexibility than the traditional face-to-face environment uh, typically allows for. And that's where my program, I think, can become a a pretty big deal. And I just want to put an exclamation beyond uh, one of your points about uh, parent-teacher conferences. I think a lot of things should continue to have some type of Zoom-in or opt-in video conferencing version when it's possible or logical to do so, not the the least of which school board meetings, um, uh, public meetings of any kind, legislative committee hearings. I think anytime we can uh, afford people those flexibility using something like a Zoom or a Google Meet or one of its alternatives, I think that's a good thing. So, okay, to you, Dr. Fryer. All right. So my first one, and I'm going to just admit here at the at the outset, I'm certainly leaning a lot more towards our recent topics in, in, in the last few months. Um, but I put TikTok Ascendant, um, and I put in a reference to our October 26th show, which was episode 273, and I think we named that episode um, TikTok for News. And I think it was in that episode that you shared an article, if I flip down through here, that TikTok is now the, well, this was just a Verge article saying um, from October 24th, increasingly become a news source. But I don't know if that one says it, but like as of, yeah, there it is. Pew Research Center increasingly, it, okay. The percentage of people getting news from TikTok has tripled since 2020. Around 10% of all U.S. adults now regularly get news on the app. For adults under 30, that number jumps to 26%. And it seems to me like, you know, we had an article that was saying that for Gen Z, you know, TikTok was the number one source of news. And our kids are now 19, 22, and 25. But just from the, well, and our 22-year-olds live with us here for the last semester, um, all the time, all the time with TikTok and mentioning different things and and stuff she's coming across. Uh, it's just, it is the most, I think TikTok is the most important media platform for a, a younger demographic than, than anything else. And I think that we are still not even realizing that, much less grappling with it appropriately as teachers. Um, I've said for years that now that video is the pencil of the 21st century, we need to be creating video, and we did some of that during the pandemic, although it was under duress, um, we need to learn how to be you know, more savvy consumers of, me, of, of video and media. And so I just, when, when you had shared that article originally, and we'd had that discussion on the show, you know, there's some, there's certain moments that are sort of like this, Waha, light bulb. Sometimes even Jason will do the, you know, you'll get the absolutely professional background noise or background, you know, sounds, transitions. It's incredible, folks. It rivals NPR. Not really. But it's seriously, I think that is a huge thing. And I, and I think that's worthy of, of like grappling with not only on this show, but like 
I could see there being an ed camp focused around video and TikTok because the, the disinformation, the whole aspect of whether, you know, that China and ByteDance is the Chinese company that controls that, the impact that has. We've had more articles talking about, you know, the U.S. military and government banning uses of TikTok on, you know, government owned devices. But we've also you wonder what's politics and then what's actually a security concern. And then when you I'll talk about Twitter later, but when you see. Just how important um, the the individual and group controlling the algorithm on the social platform is, it, it just seems like it's enormous. So, any any thoughts? Yeah, the thing I would add to it uh, from from my standpoint is that there is absolutely a broader security conversation going on about TikTok. I just don't feel like there's enough information for me to directly recommend never getting on TikTok. It's been now banned in federal government devices as part of a, a, a the $1.7 trillion budget that was just passed. It's been banned on a lot of state-owned devices uh, in uh, the past couple of weeks, including the state of Montana has banned it from all state-owned technological devices. Um, also, you can't utilize the software um, on a state network or during state time. So that's a, a obviously a huge restriction Restriction. Really, it's oh, using state time. Yep. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. oh, so um, that every school network, every university network. I would assume on school. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's well. I think they were talking about state of Montana owned devices as opposed to government owned devices. If they're talking network, I wonder how Maybe. extensive that goes as far as like if it's a taxpayer funded network. Yep. So, um, a huge amount of, um, of resources, uh, um, uh, going against TikTok. And I still am not entirely sure if I understand what the security risk is. I agree it's problematic to have, uh, data, uh, in, uh, you know, w- with access to, f- to, uh, uh, other governments to have access to that private data. But I just don't know what evidence of that exists. And I think there are, of, of, of accessing that data exists. And there is, I think we're some of that information, but a bipartisan group of, of legislators uh, at the federal level, so uh, members of uh, various committees that have international jurisdiction, Democrat or Republican, have said that they believe there's a serious threat that TikTok poses. And that's the part that I'd love more information on. But, um, you know, the Pew Internet research that you'd cited from earlier this year uh, it mirrors a lot of surveys, which suggest that people under the, of a certain age, 25-ish, is a number that I would probably say is, is a fair bet of uh, most of the research averages around. Around, say they're getting some, if not most, of their news from TikTok. And there are lots of tr- traditional news sources on TikTok. There's also kind of some upstarts and some, I, I, I guess I would call them social media news celebrities. Um, uh, I'm thinking about V from Under the Desk News, who I tune into pretty regularly because I enjoy her commentary and like the way she approaches news and, and, and being informed. I also know that a lot of creators post a TikTok suggesting that when they mention voting, uh, in, uh, TikTok, uh, videos pre-election, they started losing viewership. So they weren't being showed as much. So a lot up in the air here. I hope we can find out more uh, maybe in the next couple of months about what the overall risk of using these tools come down to. As uh, we talk more about TikTok, I'll, I'll share my own TikTok profile for Cook with Wes where I'm sharing my barbecue. And that was that was as in 2022, right? I'm, I'm positive that was, you know, Jason's encouragement of, hey, do you know about barbecue TikTok and, tick, you know, these hashtags and um Anyway, I, I I think I resuscitated a TikTok account that I had created and only posted to once or twice and thought, oh, let's just, 
you know, share cooking videos. It's, it's really that idea of playing with media, right? And then I'm going to learn a little bit more about the platform because I'm going to spend a little bit of time there. I don't spend a ton of time there. Um, to your question, Jason, I, of course, have an unclassified uh, answer to this at this point. But I think there's two primary reasons of, for the concern with TikTok. I think the number one reason is the, the race for AI. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about AI tonight. But the fact that ByteDance is not a social media company, it is an artificial intelligence company. And I would argue the number one Cold War happening right now, a hot war going on in Ukraine that continues through the winter, but there is a Cold War happening between China and the United States, and it is a fight for the future, and it is a battle for artificial intelligence. And I mentioned this on the show before. We had a recent, well, a, a graduate in the last 12 years ago from our school who works for OpenAI, you know, come speak to one of our entrepreneurship classes in November. And, and he shared that, that there's folks that he works with at OpenAI that think we're going to reach AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, when the capabilities of the AI equal and then exceed human cognitive capacity within 18 months and that he himself is more in the camp of five years. But like there's consensus there that we're going to reach that. How quickly, you know, organizations like Google or OpenAI or the government of China are able to reach that has to do with the amount of data that they can ingest into their systems and train them and, and also processors and processing power. And we had, a, what, a month ago or two months ago, the United States banned this whole level of, of, of chips that can no longer be sent to China. And so anyway, I think the first part of that has to do with really the United States government wanting to slow and impede in any way the Chinese government's ability to win and beat us um, in the in the in the, uh, the race for AI, and then I think the second part of that is just all of that information and the way in which information about us can be utilized in aggregate or very specifically, if you happen to want to travel to China, um, this is a real issue, you know. And I've posted quite a bit about the Uyghurs, and we talk about on the show, oh, hey, we're being translated, our, our voice is being, you know, translated into text, into a script as we speak, because these speech-to-text tools that have been improved through machine learning are so much better. I think that there are real risks that we have as individuals, and I think there's risks that we have in aggregate, but it continues to be very difficult to make that case to the average citizen who says, what are you talking about? I like Facebook. I like using you know, TikTok. I like I like social media. Why? What's what's the problem? This isn't hurting me, you know. And people just don't process because it's not personalized the danger that we have by essentially giving away so much data about ourselves. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. A lot to think about. Okay, so I guess that leads me into my next topic here, which is that the AI, that artificial intelligence is marching forward. And what I would say is, I guess I feel like this snuck up on me a little bit, in part because there's been an estimation about AI's massive impact on everything 
but in particular education for the past seven or eight years. And I feel like it's been much ado about nothing. And um, I, I maybe delayed by the pandemic a little bit, but it feels like in just the last 10 weeks, the conversation has gone from a sleepy backwater, um, you know, maybe someday conversation about education and also what thinking looks like, what learning looks like uh, in an AI and a post AI world. Um, to, uh, you know, something that's going to impact us next week sort of a deal. So I guess I'd start with I've been having a lot of conversations with a lot of people in lots of parts of the education industry, not the least of which is a weekly opportunity to check in with Dr. Fryer. Um, I also talked with my colleagues at the University of Montana um, and also other state virtual school leaders. And what I would say is that um, lots of kind of cocking one's head to the side and uh, thinking about maybe what's next uh, to some panic about um, assessment and learning to at least a half dozen questions have been posed to me, um, some by social media and others directly about doesn't this call education into question, not just our methods for, for, for doing so in, in 2022. So uh, Dr. Fryer, any thoughts there? So the first two are this number one, Every single one of us needs to play with some of these generative AI tools that will generate textual content and that will also generate images. This should be a priority for professional development for every single one of us in the next couple months. And the reason why is because it needs to be personalized. I think when you not only see someone do a demo of you know, putting together some words and seeing these images and then putting the name Greg Rakowski, you know, who's this incredible uh, sort of fantasy, you know, illustrator and just what these tools can do in terms of generating images, but then text. Because realize this, up and up to this point, and this happened a couple of weeks ago for my wife. She had her fifth graders uh, writing essays and she was reading me this and I said, honey, I don't I don't think they wrote that. Let's Google that as an exact word search. So we put quotation marks around a couple sentences, Googled it. We found the exact article where the student had copied and pasted basically the entire essay. Um, that shows up, that kind of cheating uh, and, and plagiarism turns up on turnitin.com. Uh, there is, I think, an assignment checker now. I think you have to be like at some extra level of Google where you're paying in order to have more than a few of these. But anyway, there's tools that can help you pick up that kind of thing. The, the generative AI tools that are now publicly available for anybody to use are going to create pretty reasonable, some people will say, depending on the topic and the, and the ways that you're use, prompting, master's level um, type content, and it can be very specific, and it's, and it's new creative content. It's not content that is just scraped off of the web that will show up on a turnitin.com turn search um, so students starting today or starting a few weeks ago can show up in our classrooms turning in essays that are that have either been written entirely by a generative AI platform or, and I think this is a, an example of how we are becoming augmented and we're going to want to utilize these tools to, to be more powerful humans. If you wanted me, Dr. Neifer, to write an essay about Huckleberry Finn and the philosophy of Immanuel Kant and how, you know, Huck personified the categorical imperative in recognizing that Jim was a human and a man and, and you know, not, not that was actually an essay that I wrote in college my junior year. 
I could have the AI probably start a great essay and then I could tweak that a little bit more and then I can turn that in. And you, you would not be able to Google that and, you know, say, oh my gosh, look, Wes just copied that straight off of, of this website. So anyway, I think those, I think this is, uh, well, the TikTok deal was really big for me, but, but I'm like you in the last 10 weeks, I don't know, two months, something like that. I have had some real big ahas actually using the tools and seeing them in action to where I'm, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is really a, a big deal. And it's not just like, oh, wow, it's Google Glass that lets, you know, somebody take a tour of CERN in Europe and make a cool video of it. No, this is stuff that we can use, our students can use. And the, and, you know, essay writing, it's like very basic to what a lot of us do in terms of assessing students. By the way, I would add one other note. Um, I'm not sure if this is, was true weeks ago when uh, the Magic Write tool was available uh, in Canva um, or if this was more recent, but there is also a text-to-image tool in Canva. So you can type in, uh, uh, in this case, I just asked it to put in air, have an elephant uh, in glasses taking an online class on a laptop and it generated an image of me of just that, or for me for just that. So again, you know, these tools aren't theoretical. They're available right now in tools that are commonly used by our students. I might have my students this semester do an Ignite presentation, which is like, you know, 20 slides, talk 20 seconds per slide for a five minute presentation using entirely AI generated images. Yeah. And just like you're using Canva, we started using um, the, um, uh, what am I trying to say? The, the uh, sticky note um, software. Help me, Jason. I'm having a moment. Uh, Google. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, where we're doing, we're doing sticky notes. Here, Lisa, this is a quiz. This is the interactive part of the show. Um, <laughs> I can get it here because I'm going to put dashboard. See, I'm on, I'm, I'm on a holiday. Okay, dashboard at Padlet. Um, <laughs> we've got Padlet as a licensed software tool that we use, which is fantastic. Um, and it has a little option that you can click on there and say, I can't draw, and then it will create the drawing for you. So there's, anyway, it's just, it's integrated in with one of the ed tech tools that we are already using. So yeah, Lisa says Jamboard. Jamboard is awesome. Um, I don't know if Jamboard, I don't think, Jamboard's had some auto draw features. I think you had to be on an iPad at one point to have the auto draw work, which is AI, you know, and machine learning augmented. But this whole thing of, you know, create a picture for me, make it more realistic, make it look more like a Picasso, make it look like a Greg Rakowski, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So anyway, we'll see. I I think I mentioned on one of our shows, I had emailed my principal here at the, at the end of the year, just like, hey, I think this is a big deal. It'd be cool to, you know, take at least 15 or 20 minutes out of a faculty meeting to, to talk about it. And hopefully, hopefully we will. Um, but whether we're doing this independently on our own or we're doing this with colleagues, we also said this and it bears repeating. I think it's good to not just say the sky is falling game over assessment, you know, and just let's all lose our minds. I don't think we need to do that. And I don't think that's helpful. I do think that it really is a, very visual and even experiential uh, reflection of rapid discontinuous change, which we continue to experience in 2022, entering 2023. Um, but I think processing that change together and talking about it and, then, and, and wrestling with it and trying to come up with some constructive 
ways of, of utilizing it because it is a reality, right? Sort of like a calculator. It, it, you know, that, that's different when kids are taking a, a face-to-face test, but you've got to, to grapple with things, especially in an online situation, right? What are students bringing? What are they able to do? Um, how, are, how are you, are you going to change your assessment? Um, how are you going to change your assessment if you recognize that students are able to bring different kinds of tools and things to the assessment that you're giving them? Absolutely. All right. Well, Wes, back to you. Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I put Twitter dumpster fire. So I uh, will apologize to everybody that I have, again, fallen behind a little bit on publishing our back episode. So I need to get with it because the holidays are almost over. But uh, back on November 9th, our episode 274 was titled Twitter dumpster fire. And I will say I did not foresee and, and expect just just as the AI was a surprise toward the end of this year about how good it's been. We, we talked about it on the show because it was sort of like a, ha ha, look at Microsoft's chat bot that is so bad. And yeah, AI will change the world later. But, you know, the, the, how good these tools are and how accessible they are has really been a surprise. It's also been a surprise to me how ugly things have have turned quickly at Twitter. And in these touches on my own perceptions of Elon Musk, who I will admit, I don't know, just with a lot of people, you know, you're sort of starstruck by, oh, look, rockets, oh, look, electric cars. But the stuff that he's done and some of the some of it, they've walked back. I haven't tried to put my Mastodon link again into my Twitter profile. I did today um, edit my name to to just put with text, you know, my my Mastodon. But I think the meltdown that we've had with Twitter. And I don't know, when we were seeing some things in the last couple of days where evidently there was some unresponsiveness to the website. I just, we, we know that social media platforms ha- have played and continue to play a huge role in our society. They played a, a big role with Brexit. They played a big role in the 2016 elections. I, I kind of think maybe they played a somewhat lesser role um, in the elections of 2020. We certainly didn't hear about, for instance, Russia's you know involvement and a lot of the same kinds of things that we heard back in 2016, but I don't know. I just, it's one of the foremost things on my mind because I spend so much time on social media and I've really been spending more time on Mastodon. I've had very good experiences there. It's, it's like the early web 2.0 days of like the, the mid two thousands and, and late two thousands when there was just, there were fewer folks using blogs and in these discussions because it was geekier. You had to use this thing I called an RSS reader and you were, you know, just kind of bumbling around in the dark a little bit more to try to find people. It was harder, but you could find people sharing really great ideas and and it really enriched your life to encounter those folks and then have a a portal, a radar screen <laughs> Uh, you know, through which you could, you know, see the ideas that they were sharing, you could interact with them, etc. So I think that the meltdown of Twitter is a huge, huge thing. Um, I think that overall, it could be beneficial to us to have Mastodon, but I haven't shared this on the show because it just happened a couple nights ago, but I happened to look at the feed of my instance, and Jason, you and I are on the same Mastodon instance. I set up um, EdTechSR, incidentally, on Mastodon.education, which is an education-specific instance. And I'm, I saw some horrific things that would absolutely have been censored and users banned forever 
uh, if they had shared that on Twitter or on Facebook or on another platform, you know, should I have reported it? Maybe. But I don't know enough about Mastodon to know if I'm accountable or that person might come back at me and do something. And so anyway, I was just pretty um, distressed to see that. And I am not sure if I want to stay on this instance. You know, they also haven't updated it and we don't have an edit feature, you know, on our, on our mess, on our posts, our toots. Um, and, and you do on, on new, more newly updated instances. So anyway, um, Lisa says, none of us foresaw this. Yeah. I mean, it's like, did anybody foresee <laughs> how social media would be weaponized and, and extremist groups were going to, you know, take such advantage of, of these tools and these platforms. It's a, it's a game of cat and mouse that's continually being played. But anyway, I see that as a pretty substantial, event of of the year what are your thoughts dr knifer uh yeah i i I guess i would just also say too that um i think a lot uh, everyone has a different experience on twitter because of their logarithmic thinking behind it right and so uh, most of my twitter account has always been just generally about education and and technology and um i don't follow uh, relatively that many politicians or cultural leaders or celebrities or anything along those lines. Um, it's been mostly centered in that ed tech world. And so, you know, the discussions I get into is the merits of Chromebooks, right? That's a, a different discussion than the things that are going on. And um, I think that there are some people that have maybe a legitimate beef that Twitter has looked better for them since the, uh, uh, the, the, the conversations turn more into a kind of sort of free speech free for all. Although part of the problem is that, uh, free speech doesn't seem to be consistently applied, uh, in the new Twitter model to those that were saying things like the day after bots were supposedly kicked off, their bot numbers increased and they were getting, uh, hassled, uh, in chat uh, by bots, um, which I can't even imagine what that's like. Um, but more importantly, I never really had that big of a problem with bots. And, uh, in the weeks since the new, uh, anti-bot measures were turned on, I've, I've suddenly have bots, clear bots following me. Um, have uh, you had, have you had NFT bots? Because I continue to have almost every day some different account, which I'll always ban and block which is telling me how great this later cryptocurrency, NFT, whatever. And I never had that before. And that's just happened in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yep, totally. That's my experience as well. So, uh, you know, uh, the fact that you and I are a Mastodon, it's clearly not my preferred channel. Um, in fact, I'm not entirely sure what my preferred channel is anymore, and especially since I've changed my relationship with tools like Instagram and Facebook as well. But oh, yeah, what, what I... Say again? How have Instagram and, and Facebook changed for you? Um, well, I mean, Facebook has never been a really a professional uh, a platform for me. It's always been a personal platform. And in fact, I don't even really talk about my profession all that much. I mean, other than sometimes, you know, a uh, day in the life of teaching kind of pieces. But I've tried to scale back a little bit. I deleted the app off my phone about a year and a half ago. I don't check in nearly as much. I probably check into Facebook once or twice a week now instead of once or twice a day. Um, Instagram is a little more serious for me in part because I feel like, uh, it's, it's harder for things to be bad there, but also I have to curate quite a bit there as well. Um, and to be honest, I spend more time on TikTok than either of those two. And because, you know, barbecue TikTok and cooking TikTok and book talk and teacher talk is pretty funny. And I think, uh, you know, I got, I got sucked into it for sure. (laughs) All right. 
Hey, it's uh, we're two thirds of the way done with the show. We're each done with two topics, and we have geeks to week. So maybe we're we're pacing ourselves well. Um, I put a comment in there for Lisa. She had mentioned she said packet is cool. I don't know if she was talking about pocket or packet. Is there a new? Is there a tool named packet? I'm not aware of that. We'll see what she puts into the chat here. That's okay. We can you can move on to your next one, and we'll. Great. Um, and then I, I guess maybe this actually has to do with, with all of the above, but we've often talked about what we call the tech correction here on the show with all of, uh, social media seeming to take some sort of hit or reconsideration or at least a, a reckoning of some sort. That's going to definitely uh, continue on 2023, but you take TikTok plus Twitter. Um, plus, uh, Facebook trying to reinvent itself as something else completely. You take all these together and it's just an incredible amount of, of, of philosophy or philosophical being plus time away from when these tools were getting started, um, you know, 16, 18 years ago. So I continue to uh, look forward to see where this train is going. And I hope that, uh, more of these tools bring connection with others as opposed to derision. We still haven't seen any substantial privacy law federally in the United States. Uh, we have seen, you know, California pass some legislation. My perception is that we're continuing to see Europe um, kind of lead the way with respect to some re- some regulation of the attention economy and the harvesting of our data and, and sort of the, the Wild West that um, we've seen with, with big tech. Um, it will be interesting to see if... The fallout of Twitter, you know, anyway, what what kind of an impact, you know, if indeed advertisers and journalists walk away from Twitter, that will I think that will be a big deal. Um, If Twitter can't make money, (laughs) that will be a big deal. But, um, you know, these privacy issues, we really, uh, I think, need an uprising of the people. And the thing that's so odd is, as we already talked about on the show, sometimes it's hard to even understand for ourselves individually, what's the harm? How am I being hurt by all this data being taken and not having a a right to privacy and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm interested to see how that moves forward. But again, I would, I would like to see more specific proposals and, and specific, specific advocacy um, agendas that we might want to get behind as educators and also as, you know, somewhat savvy, you know, technology using citizens because I I just don't, I think there's a lot of hand wringing and what was it a couple years ago that the social dilemma was really big and people got upset and they said, Oh my gosh, look at this. I know I have that experience at my house. Everyone looks at their screen and it's just bad. But you know, I don't know that anything has, has happened. I will say that the group that did that, that primarily was behind the social dilemma uh, Tristan Harris and the center, the Center for Humane Computing, I think. Is that right? Um, you know, they've got a great podcast and they had, a, and in fact, because this was a pretty big, big event in 2022, the Francis Haugen from Facebook. Hey, look at that. I'm 52 and I remembered I could actually pull that name out of my, out of the, the, the head. Was that in 2022 that Francis Haugen testified before Congress and we had a lot of hoopla because she was the whistleblower? think so yeah yeah i mean we could obviously google that to see real quick but um that she was just on a um the center for let's see wall street journal 2021 um yeah okay 
No, it's October 2021. Oh my, how fast it all goes. All right, so it wasn't even in this last year. I don't know. You you, you have these splash events that ki- that capture people's attention for a little while. It's the social dilemma on Netflix. It's the testimony of Francis Haugen. You know, it's the election of 2016. But then you know things move on. So hopefully there'll be more substantive action taken that positively and constructively helps the situation rather than just creating more unintended consequences and impeding the, you know, march of innovation. Um, but anyway, I am, I am reading a lot more about, <laughs> I guess this is political, but, you know, letting billionaires just do whatever they want, thinking about Elon and Twitter, you know, or just assuming that because they've been successful in, in this, you know, business, they're, they're knowledgeable about everything. Let's just let them, do whatever they want and not pay taxes. <laughs> that may not be a great idea. So anyway, hopefully there'll be some positive, you know, results of, of, of all of that. But are you going to do anything with the tech correction, Jason? You, you know, going to write, write a book on it or, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I've had a couple presentations I've done on it at conferences. Um, you know, I've also thought I'd make a heck of a blog if I had time to write really good in-depth stories, which I don't, but um, yeah, I, and, and I don't know, maybe historically it'll be known as the tech correction and maybe just maybe we'll get a footnote somewhere because of it. So, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, my last one goes back to the end of August, August 31st, and we titled our show The Rise of Bossware. And so I had never heard of this term bossware. Um, until having some articles that we talked about, you know, during the show, this is the, this was certainly fed by COVID and the pandemic, this idea of being able to have tracking software that is watching you, you know, take tests and, you know, using AI tools to, to try and do that. But Bossware also, it's not just for, you know, academics and and test taking, you know, it's also software that tracks people's mouse movements. And there's new software that people will buy that keeps their mouse moving because and there's all kinds of things that have happened, you know, during COVID and afterwards. Sometimes people trying to do two jobs at once. But anyway, it's just that's a sign of the times that we're living in with more and more work as well as study happening online in a virtual environment. Um, organizations, schools, businesses uh, want to do things to try and ensure people aren't cheating, people aren't stealing, you know, people are being honest. Um, I think even within Google, and you know, I, I haven't, I've not been a tech director now for three and a half years, um, but I'm pretty sure that if you're a school paying for the second or third tier, or maybe that's just the first paying tier or the second paying tier of, of the what is now Google Apps for Education, Google Workspace, um, you have some more substantive tools to be able to find out, hey, who who's checking their email, who's looking at docs, who's you know doing such and such. Um, have you have you dabbled in any of those tools in the Google admin area? Not not really. I mean, you know, we do have to chase a lot of. I didn't go, get that email down using the e-discovery tools because that's a, a good percentage of my job is to try to connect people who think they might have emailed when they haven't. Right. But the bottom line is is that no, we we haven't spent that much time there. And I have to say, I mean, this is probably going to be uh, a little crass, but you know, uh, we've been kind of training workers for the last twenty years to do this because we 
use those tools in schools all the time with students. And I'm not, you know, saying that to debate their merits at all, uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that would be a, a, an important and hearty discussion. But the bottom line, um, is that, you know, surveillance is, is kind of part of the game in, in managed environments. And, um, you know, I would say if you're truly considering, uh, if you're a, an administrator, school administrator somewhere, utilizing these types of tools, even if you have people that work primarily online, I think you just got to get in tr employees to trust and build a trusting relationship, uh, even if they can't be under your nose all the time. So, um, but that's probably neither here nor there. But these tools are getting a lot more serious very quickly. I'll, I'll tell two quick stories um, that are positive, but they also point to how in school we need to have capacity to you know, appropriately use and deal with the information that can come out of this. Um, a friend of mine who's a technology director of a very large suburban district, um, I think it's Lightspeed that they're using. It really allows for even classroom teachers to have a granular report on basically when the filter has been tripped for students. And this was at a, a school where they were using Chromebooks and iPads. Um, but those kinds of reports, if I'm remembering right, the district could also allow parents to be able to see. And so, you know, we've had filters on the Internet forever, you know, for schools and E-rates required that. Um, but being able to potentially, you know, have a teacher or a school administrator or counselor or a parent, you know, get a report on what, you know, what's the, the child, you know, tripping with the filter. Um, I had an experience at my new school in North Carolina, and I will, you know, chalk this up really positively that our IT department, you know, does some intermittent spot checks. It's not like, you know, and I know this as a tech director, you're not sitting there watching everybody's, you know, mouse move and you have no, don't have time to do that. But <coughs> they do some spot checks. And there was actually a student in one of my classes who was doing some Google searches about VPNs. And so <laughs> the tech director ended up pulling that, you know, child out of my class and having a conversation about what are you doing looking up VPNs, you know, and anyway, I think he was like, what, you know, so it's a, it's important to know that yes, Big Brother can watch and can see those, and and I think that if some of these tools are developing that kind of capacity, um, that can be good. But we also need to be ready with professional development and with personnel and also with policies to say, do you want to have this information? And if you get it, what is your plan for how you're going to utilize it, and how does that intersect, you know, legally as well? Um, with student rights and, and, and things like that. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the tool. There's one that we use to monitor both email and Google Docs for any, you know, references to weapons, to uh, threats, to bullying. And um, I'm not give, having the name of that come right up. But anyway, I know that when I was able to introduce that at our school, um, you know, we, we needed to have a lot of protocols in place for who actually got to see that and then how it was actionable and how all of that worked. It was just critical and vital. So anyway, that's that is kind of tied to this age of bossware and surveillance. And we've been having those capabilities and need to know that, hey, emails being archived and and uh, re retention, you know, it's being retained for for years and years um, after we send it. And we want to be really careful about all that. But 
some of this has qualitatively changed as far as the information, perhaps, that teachers, that parents, that administrators are having access to. And I think it's just important to, to think those things through and have a plan, you know, for what we're going to do with that information, if indeed we get that. Because more information isn't always, you know, a great thing. And in many cases, it, it adds layers of complexity and challenge to our lives that we may or may not have had to deal with or have had to deal with in the volume that we could potentially be doing in a district of, you know, 45,000 kids or, you know, something like that. Totally. All right. Well, we have talked for about 50 minutes. Um, we can throw the question out there to Lisa and we have another live viewer who's out there. So if any of you have thoughts of a theme uh, that was significant in 2022 impacting educational technology of the year, were there any, anything else, Jason, before geeks of the week that you, uh, that almost made your your top three list or how did you oh you know i made a word cloud actually um which i need to i don't know what's a fast fast website to just throw uh throw this up i tried i took out all the months and the the civil words and the and the years but uh you know correction the word ember was up why would that be up um tech twitter facebook windows ukraine microsoft uh privacy Ember and Timber. That's weird. Oh, you know what? It's because it's because I eliminated. I was trying to, to do the abbreviation for those months. So anyway, sorry, that was a distraction. iPhone, space, Facebook. I don't know. I was I was thinking, couldn't AI help us with this? Because I took all of the show notes right for the entire year. Word does has that right where you where you say summarize text, but. Right. Well, a couple thoughts about that in regards to, you know, focusing on the what if instead of the, you know, OMG, this is terrible a part of this. I mean, that would be a really interesting tool that if, if you and I could cut and paste, I mean, in a way, um, a word cloud generator is a bit of an artificial intelligence in that it, it, you, you're asking it to prioritize what it considers to be the most important or the most prolifically mentioned topics in a list, right? But imagine for a moment if um, you could do what you did there in the word cloud, but instead have it trace for patterns, right? Uh, earlier versus later, um, uh, the the tense of the, the sentences, uh, what can be predicted about what's about to happen next based on these headlines. And those tools uh, may not be immediate, but probably aren't that far off into the future. And once AI becomes a tool set that you can start to meaningfully process your own data and ask your own questions, as opposed to taking the massive amount of data that the current set of tools utilizes and try to answer questions from it, I think that's going to prove to be a mind-blowing experience uh, for uh, uh, learners and teachers alike. Lisa comments that she keeps hearing um, enrollments in higher education are down. Um, and I uh, responded that I think a reckoning in, of, of higher, in higher ed is, is happening. And this is actually related to my job search, right? I applied to 35 different places and ended up, you know, staying in K-12 education uh, and coming here to North Carolina. But, uh, um, you know, the pandemic gave a lot of people more experiences with, with online education. It also, I think, did a did, did a pretty big number on the job and labor market with respect to there's just a lot more challenge that people have now in, in filling um, minimum wage jobs and having enough folks uh, doing lower paying jobs. Um, I've had some conversations with some different people that talked about, 
you know, doing, deciding, and, and part of it was during the pandemic, you know, having some some money and reflecting, and anyway, just deciding they were going to do something else. They were going to go back to school. They they were going to they, they didn't want to work food service forever or whatever. Um, but I think that you know the cost of higher ed, you know, having one college graduate, one almost college graduate a semester away, and then one that is on the brink of college, um, you know, it's very very expensive and. You know, all of the loans, all of the debt that's out there um, in enrollments definitely, um, you know, took a hit in some areas. I, I don't know. I'm you're a little, you're on the campus of, of, a, of a major university, Dr. Neifer. So do you know if the University of Montana has, has been affected by that as far as enrollment numbers? And you yeah, have we any- have a long trend of enrollment decreases at the University of Montana, and it has stabilized in, in the last 18 months uh, over a historic trend. This is going over, uh, I think, eight or nine years. So we may our trend may look differently than other institutions of higher education. But I guess my, 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 my quick answer of what I think would probably be an hours-long discussion is that I think the pandemic hastened a trend in higher education that was happening anyways. I think critical discussions are starting to become a, a, a part of the discourse about higher education. And I have no good answers other than to say that I think a lot of people become dissatisfied with the model. Um, I'm not sure if I have the answer of what's next there or what should be next or what will be next, but I'm hoping that we could find more ways to give people access to formal education um, to help them live their life's dreams. And that's why I think the promise of uh, K-12 and higher education has always been, and that we should be prior- prioritizing that as part of whatever we do with this broader model. I was able to have a phone conversation with uh, my first boss that I had at Texas Tech when I was a director of distance learning in the College of Education there, and just wonderful to to touch base with him, and he's retired and living in Colorado, but he mentioned some numbers, not only about Texas Tech, but also um, Texas A&M and UT, and the number of tenure-track faculty, and I don't, I don't know that this was specific to the education college, I think this was across the university, but basically that there's just a lot fewer tenure track positions that the universities are are maintaining and keeping now. And just the whole thing about cost and, you know, adjuncts. And we've all both, both Jason and I have, have experienced that as adjunct instructors at different institutions. Um, just how the food chain, you know, kind of works in, in higher education. Um, it's, uh, it's challenging. There's just not that many uh, tenure track positions. There's more folks that are vying for those positions. Um, and so I think that the shakeup of, of that is continuing, but I don't, I don't know that I can see anything that's going to be a, you know, line in the sand, but it is, hopefully we are stabilizing in many ways as we come out of, of COVID. Um, you know, our, our daughter was able to take her, all of her classes online this semester. That's why she was able to, to move with us to North Carolina. She's headed back to be in person for her last semester there in, uh, in Oklahoma, but, um, Again, lessons learned that, that kind of circles us back to the beginning. And hopefully there's opportunities in higher ed as well as in K-12 to, you know, learn some positive lessons from what we did and experienced during the COVID times and uh, make our situation better. But in some cases, departments are just sort of fighting to survive and, and struggling, you know, as far as not having to declining enrollments and, and all those kind of things. But I'm sure that varies varies considerably. I know from the standpoint of, of independent schools, both back in Oklahoma and here, um, lots and lots of parents and lots and lots of families signing up, you know, for a limited number of spots. Um, but the situation of public schools, which we could do a completely different show about, you know, is, is, is pretty tough. So, yep. 
All right, sir. Well, we got about a couple minutes here. We got some times for Geeks of the Week. So do you have a culminating Geek of the Week for the year of 2020? Yeah, this is something I'm not sure if I mentioned um, uh, directly in the show, but I have moved back to getting more of my resources from an RSS reader. Uh, so I'm going back to the future of sorts. And um, Wes and I have both talked about and maybe even bemoaned the the uh, uh, unfortunate, untimely death death of Google Reader, um, which seems like decades ago, um, but I would think it was eight or nine years ago. And um, it just was a very, especially when you like to cover everything or you like to see the headlines and, and not have to go from site to site to site to site, a good RSS reader is pretty invaluable. And I'm using the Inno Reader. Uh, it's the free version right now. I was uh, so into this, I was prepared to sign up and pay for it at the time, but I found that the free version uh, meets my needs. Um, but uh, we could talk about RSS probably for hours and hours itself, but if you are looking at maybe trying to be a little more thoughtful about your, your media presence, funny to say in 20, 2022, almost 2023, I think an RSS reader might help you uh, put your hands around the things you want to know without grasping too far. Lisa says she uses Feedly, and I still have my Feedly uh, account, although I haven't really updated any feeds that are in it, uh, but I look at it from time to time. Um, but I would say that Mastodon could serve in that role. By the way, every Mastodon channel immediately converts to an RSS feed. So on our family learning blog, I put a feed of my Mastodon just by using an RSS widget. <clears throat> my tweet, my geek of the week is, is actually what you people who, and maybe I've made some people sick who were trying to watch this online <laughs> by having such an active animation. But the animation that I've had in the background here is a visualization of Winter Storm Elliot, right? Because we're we're naming these winter storms now to anthropomorphize them and generate more fear and eyeballs probably for the Weather Channel. <clears throat> but this was originally shared on the Bird site, as Twitter is called on Mastodon, uh, by Colin McCarthy. But it is a visualization, you know, showing this really deep dive that I think was it Siberian cold that finally, you know cross the end, the Arctic Circle and, you know, came down to even affect Houston, Texas, which was down below freezing uh, for a couple of days. Um, so that's my Geek of the Week. But what I would say, and I and I put a, uh, I actually did a little video about this on YouTube. Um, you can create lists for Mastodon like you can for Twitter. And I'm using that uh, iOS app, Toot, T-O-O-T with an exclamation point. Um, and it's just really great to, you know, create lists about different things. I'm showing my age because I even have a list for birding and I'm looking at birds. Isn't that just, yeah, I remember my parents did that. I was like, you're getting old. So, you know, <laughs> here I go. I'm, I'm watching the birds. But seriously, I think that in addition to RSS and some of these early technologies and being in Mastodon is a reminder of that, having your own website, having your own place where you share ideas, you know, and people can link to those and they're not going to go away. You know, your whole account. I, I, I've, I've downloaded my Twitter archive a couple times. I don't know if you've done that, Jason, but uh, I still need to, to do that again. And there are some, some good tools. Be careful from a security standpoint, right? Because you run these Python scripts or whatever, you know, just off of the web and off of GitHub. You're taking risks with your machine. Um, but you can convert your Twitter uh, archive to a complete HTML with, with not having shortened Twitter links that even rely on Twitter um, and the, and Twitter's uh, link shortener. Anyway, to just make it a browsable, searchable archive of tweets. Because, you know, I have been using Twitter as my main 
would you call this a bear trap, you know, for trapping information? I mean, it's been my place, not only to share information, but to trap it because I can go back later, put in a hashtag, put in a keyword. Oh my gosh, there it is. You know, I, I've found it. And so I'm still using Twitter as well as Mastodon, but I'm just finding myself using it, using Mastodon more and, and investing in that list building. So my RSS or, or that, sa that same kind of like building feeds that, and, that I can filter the information and get, you know, listen to people that I want to listen to. I think RSS is awesome and it's really a sad thing that it, I don't know, maybe it was just too geeky for mainstream. And that's why people did it. Or there wasn't enough ad revenue in it for Google. That's why they killed Reader. I don't know. But anyway, I'm glad you're into Inno Reader and I'm, you know, excited to find Mastodon a inspiring and beneficial environment to encounter ideas and to, you know, throw questions out there and things like that. So, all right, sir, I think we've exceeded the hour yet again. Uh, I think folks can still find you on Twitter. Is that rumor true? That's true. Yes. I am still on Twitter at tech savvy teach, or you can find me on Mastodon, uh, knife, N E I F at Mastodon.cloud. And how is the uh, planning for the NCCE closing keynote going? Uh, it's going really well. Uh, I've got some really exciting ideas, and uh, it's my first big uh, convention uh, keynote. Um, I've done some some smaller events in Montana before um, and some, some regional stuff, but I'm really excited. And I've got a great speech uh, 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 in the works, and um, I'm looking forward to that event uh, late March in Tacoma, Washington. That is fantastic. Well, you can find me at westfriar.com slash after. And um, Absol on Twitter at WFryer, and I'm WFryer at Mastodon.cloud. That may change at some point. But we are the EdTech Situation Room. We are a normally once-a-week podcast coming to you on Wednesday evenings, although we've been coming on Thursdays and had a little bit of a uh, disrupted schedule here. But hopefully we'll be back on a more normal schedule in 2023. You can download our podcast wherever you find podcasts and subscribe to us on YouTube as well. Follow us on Facebook because when we do have a change in our show, we will post that uh, both to Twitter and Facebook. And now we'll be sharing that on Mastodon. So you can find us at edtechsr at mastodon.education. So we want to encourage everybody to stay savvy and stay safe. Hope you had a very jovial Festus. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Christmas. Uh, whatever celebration you happen to have. And hopefully you are staying warm. And we look forward to hopefully continuing to learn together with you in 2023. And we wish everybody a happy new year and a happy 2023. So take care until next time. Good night.